All right, so we're going to start with a word of prayer, and then we'll go into our last topic for the weekend on the topic of evangelism. It's called, What We Do Is Not Good. That's borrowed language, by the way, so you can't kick me out of here. It's biblical. Um, We'll see it here in just a moment, but let's start and pray. God, thank you that you do have a plan for evangelism to bless our churches and to bless our faith community. Pray that you would open our eyes to the biblical premise behind it and that you would show us how to succeed uh, in implementing it here. And we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this is borrowed advice. We'll see that here in a moment. I'll give you kind of some background. Uh, typically, for the evangelistic series, a series scenario that we have, uh, we hire a guy to preach or the pastor himself plans to preach. I did that. I just finished one of these not that long ago. We mail out flyers hoping somebody else will show up. About 1% of people showing up is an acceptable return in your investment between 1 and you know, 5 or 8%. Um, some members invite friends, and some other form of advertisement takes place, maybe something in the newspaper or whatever. And uh, all the attendees or members watch one man do a majority of the work and have a little participation apart from the appeals or bridge events, if they have bridge events, right? So we bring in the hired guns, send out some flyers, and then the preacher preaches all the meetings, and if members show up, they just kind of sit and watch, right, many times. Uh, a series happens, and a small number of those people are baptized, and we praise God for that, right? That a small ratio, so you, you send out all these flyers, a small percentage show up to a meeting, a smaller percentage of that actually say yes and receive uh, this message and choose to join the church. If your church is fortunate enough to have conference funds, or if they can afford to pay for it themselves, a Bible worker furthers those uh, connections that we've made outside of the meetings, if you have that, Okay. We now hope that the church nurtures them and that they're able to make friends as new members of the church. Statistics show that if people connect with six people within a local church, so if a visitor who comes to an evangelistic series, if they connect or a visitor to church in general, if they're able to connect with six different people, the likelihood of them staying goes up quite significantly. But So you're hoping that that level of of interaction and connection takes place. We also hope that somehow they're going to want to reach out to their friends and community, but we rarely equip them to do so. We talked about this last night, right, that it's uh, people don't know how to share, so they don't share, right? Like, I would do something, but I don't know how. I don't know where to start. And so many times new members are not equipped to share their faith because our own members many times are not equipped to share their faith. And for many, fear and lack of training keeps them from reaching out. So this is, this is what you're going to see in many churches in North America today, something along these lines. What we would brand as doing evangelism as a local church is we hold public meetings with very little investment in the community throughout the year. Then we hold a reaping meeting, but the problem is an evangelistic series is indeed a reaping meeting to reap the investments in the community that you've been making over the course of the year. You can't really weep what, reap what you don't sow, right? That's, that's part of the struggle. Now, God in His great mercy is still bringing people into this movement through our less-than-ideal means that happen at times in local congregations. Now, this isn't absolutely across the board. There are churches who are active in their local communities, who are doing health events and community events and finance classes and so forth, making good, solid connections, and from that, they're inviting people to reaping meetings, and it's much more effective. Our students, for instance, are going out and doing Bible work in the community, giving personal Bible studies, investing in people. Then they invited people to our public meetings, and the beautiful story is many of those people who actually came to our meetings that were connected to our students made decisions for baptism. Nearly all of them, actually, which was amazing. So 
Um, that's, that's just part of how this generally goes down. So what we're posing today is using a biblical method to improve our public evangelism, not to replace public evangelism, but the synopsis that I just gave you is quite common in North America. I think there's a way that we can make this much more effective that's a biblical model, right? Small group evangelism, okay? How many people have ever attended a small group, right? There's a small Bible study, a group of people in someone's home or somewhere else. Isn't that such a blessing? right? It's, it's less like intimidating. It's just a comfortable place to grow together, to commune together, talk and study and so forth. So that's what we're going to talk about today and how this can really improve uh, our local church settings and just improve our faith community at large. So the benefits, for one, it's located in a home and not a church, which is already less intimidating, right? For some people, the friction involved of having to walk into a church it's kind of scary for them, right? It's a little harder for them than going to somebody's home. It's a little more disarming in that sense. Number two, there's a substantially smaller group present than at a church service, right? I don't know how many people were here this morning, but the place is nearly full. That's kind of scary. You don't know anybody. You feel really outnumbered. In a small group setting, it's a warm, intimate, smaller gathering, and you don't feel so intimidated. It's casual, and there's some activity or meal or both that makes them more comfortable, and we'll talk about that in a bit. And then group participation is welcomed and encouraged, and everyone contributes, Right? So people aren't coming to a small group to hear somebody preach at them. We're talking together and learning together. This is one of the beautiful things about Sabbath school when it's done correctly. Right? Sometimes Sabbath school is just sermonizing yet again with a few interrupting comments. Right? But the, the main purpose for Sabbath school was to facilitate discussion. Right? Not to be a monologue, but to facilitate a dialogue and to keep things moving. Does that make sense? And that's just so exciting because like, I get to be involved. Like, there's things I've been studying and thinking about, and I get to share my point of view, and I get to learn from somebody else's point of view, and it's not just somebody preaching at me, which really, really is helpful. Okay? Uh, and now lay people are doing the boots-on-the-ground investment and instruction instead of just a Bible worker or a pastor, right? So you're spreading the load of who's doing the actual investment in the community, which makes things better as well, right? Because pastors are getting crushed out and weighed down with administrative responsibilities, counseling, and so forth. That's a lot of things that you have to do, and it's difficult to go out there and pound the ground and win souls as you would like because you have all these other things you're tending to, plus you've got a family and so forth. But when you're engaging in small group evangelism, it actually allows for lay people to take the reins and take responsibility for the growth and health of the local congregation. Do you see the benefit in that? It's a beautiful thing, right, that everybody can be involved. Now, a community is being formed inside of the community of the church. So the church is kind of like the town, and the small group is like the neighborhood, right? So you're growing a deeper, smaller community, which in turn is growing the overall atmosphere and environment of the church at large, right? And which is wonderful, very, very wonderful. Members and visitors now have a safe place to be vulnerable and to grow in grace together. It's a place where you can say, hey, I had, I had a rough week. Can we talk about it and pray about it? You can't hijack a church service to talk about your individually difficult week, right? But in a small group setting where you're praying together and growing together and sharing one another's burdens, it's a place where you can do that. It's appropriate and helpful. Does that make sense? And instead of hoping the visitor plugs in with three or four members after the series, 10 to 12 people are bonding together before a series even happens. 
you're building a solid form of community all along the way so that now when a reaping meeting does come, you've got something to build off of. You've got a community of invested people who would be more inclined to come because the people they've been connecting with the last two to three months, they are going. Yeah? So you have people who are not members of the church, who are just meeting in a home regularly with actual church members, and those people are inviting them now to an event because they're ready. Right, you've taken them through growth and community and so forth. And even if they struggle to connect with other members in the church, they have a bond with their small group and discipleship continues after the series by lay people. This is the other benefit, right? That even if they don't connect with a lot of people when they do attend any form of meeting, they are connecting with other people who keep investing in them and discipling them even after the meeting has concluded, which is also huge and helpful. Everyone gets to have a voice and feel valued and listened to instead of staring at the pastor and relying on him to do everything, right? Now you get to say, you get to, you know, share and do and engage and lead and so forth. And pastors now have less of a burden on their shoulders to deal with by themselves because members are taking charge of nurturing and supporting the community that's being built in this environment, okay? But to be clear, we are not saying do away with what has been done. What we are saying, this is not an either-or premise. This is a both-and. We should still be doing reaping meetings and bridge events and so forth, but they become even more effective when you've been building community in the context of small groups, right? These people, that you've got five or six people who aren't members of the church, who've been connecting with this small group over the span of weeks and months, and now when you have a public meeting, you've got people to bring who are solid quality leads who are more inclined to stay because they already have connections with people that are attending. They've already heard some of these principles that are coming out in the meetings, and they're being called to make a decision, right, in, in a public fashion in public meetings. So, uh, I, I just think that this can really, really help to jumpstart any local congregation and just build a safe space for community, right? You've got a university here. There are many young people who are on this campus who don't know what you know or just don't have much of a spiritual connection potentially. This is a safe place to just invite them to begin that journey of a solid community to nurture and encourage them and to kind of lead them into beautiful biblical truths. Does that make sense? It's wonderful. It's, it's far less confrontational to save place for them, as we talked about this morning, to grow at their own pace. Some people may be able to go through something more quickly. Other people may take a few years. In a small group context, that's not an issue, right? They can just keep coming to the small groups over time. So some biblical validation for this, and then after that, we'll go into ways that you can actually implement this yourselves. And I know there are some small groups happening around, but I just want to kind of encourage more of that. So I'll kind of do this in like summary explanation style. There's like four bullet points, and they'll actually walk through each of them afterwards. So you have the Garden of Eden that was meant to be a school based upon the home. Then you have Moses' counsel from Jethro, which is where we get the title for today's message. And then we have the ministry of Jesus and the book of Acts. Okay, so let's kind of walk through these individually. This is from the book Education, page 20.1, regarding the Eden School. The system of education instituted at the beginning of the world was to be a model for man throughout all after time. As an illustration of its principles, a model school was established in Eden, and then it says the home of our first parents. The Garden of Eden was the schoolroom, nature was the lesson book, the creator himself was the instructor, and the parents of the human family were the students. Can you imagine what that experience must have been like? To literally be able to like sit down under the canopy of the Garden of Eden and have God be your personal teacher and instructor? 
How amazing would that be? Sitting barefoot, no mosquitoes, no ticks. You guys don't have ticks out here in California. I mean, you kind of do. It's just taxes and gas prices. But actual ticks, we have those out in Pennsylvania. Continuing, they say the Garden of Eden was a representation of what God desired the whole earth to become. And it was his purpose that as the human family increased in numbers, that they should establish other homes and schools like the one that he had given. So the idea was what you learned in this small environment, you would now go and start another environment as this one grew and do the same thing. And as that one grew, people would split off and start something else. It wouldn't be some large institution. You keep splitting up into smaller environments. Okay? And uh, thus, in the course of time, the whole earth might be occupied with homes and schools where the words and the works of God should be studied, and where the student should thus be fitted more and more fully to reflect throughout endless ages the light of the knowledge of His glory. So, there's an activity that teaches about the principles of heaven, in a, and it's a great way to instruct and grow character in a small group setting. And when a group is successful, this model and some of its members should be used to start another group. Right? Sometimes you hear this referred to as like life groups. I remember uh, David Ashrick, whenever he, uh, one of my friends, one of my mentors, whenever he was pastoring in Australia, they had different life groups doing different activities. So you could have like a running club or a book club, or uh, in this case, they had a woodworking club. So David's wife, Violetta, like built them a bed in woodworking. So each week for like an hour or so, they would have some form of activity that they would do. And it's important at the activity itself that you could actually draw lessons and point to Jesus, right? There's certain things, you know, it's probably not going to be the best thing uh, to really draw spiritual lessons when it's not a spiritual activity in the first place, or there's no real connection. So you kind of want to focus on building this around things that actually do have spiritually uplifting potential, right? When it comes to health and healthy cooking or exercise or time out in nature and hiking. My buddy, uh, Dwight Nelson has some of these also at Andrews University, and my buddy was helping to run like a backpacking and camping small group. How cool would that be, huh? Just go out and go backpacking and just enjoy some time together. So having activities that can point people heavenward, they can learn practical principles and lessons uh, is a great way to do something like this. You can center it around an activity uh, and so forth. And then people from that group, as it finishes or as it grows, can go start another group, right? So it doesn't get too full. Because the point is, you don't want this group to be full of active church members. You want there to be like a few key church members who are involved, and then you have a bunch of visitors that fill in the other slots, right? And once those slots are full, then you kind of take some of these people after you finished a group and grown together and made decisions and you move on to the next, uh, you kind of spread out and so forth. It's kind of the same principle in how church planting should happen. Instead of having massive, large congregations, once you get to a certain decent size, some of these church members go and plant another church, right? And grow and so forth. Same kind of idea. Okay, here's our second one. What we do is not good. This is in Exodus chapter 18 and verse 13. Moses is doing all this heavy, difficult administrative work. His father-in-law sees what's going on and says, I got some questions here. Says, so it was on the next day, Exodus 18 verse 13, that Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood before Moses. How long? From morning until evening. It's like the DMV, right? Whatever you call it here in California. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what, what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning to evening? Yeah, I got a question. Why is this long line happening? And why are you here all day? And why are you only doing this by yourself? Why is this, Moses? Here's Moses' response. 
He said, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, again, he says, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. You can imagine why this would be exhausting, can't you? Only one person can help them understand and work through their problems, and there's a bunch of them, hundreds of thousands, that'd get exhausting. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. This is fascinating to me because this guy is literally helping them to understand God's will for their lives, to work through difficulties and to give them Christian counsel, and yet his father-in-law tells him, hey, that's not good. Is it that that's not good or the way that he's doing it is not good? Yes, the way that he's doing it that's wearing them out. That's the problem, right? He says, why? Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out for this thing is too much for you and you are not able to perform it by yourself. The unfortunate truth of the matter, my friends, is that there are many pastors in North America right now, that's what their life looks like. What they're doing is not good. They're exhausted, no one's helping them, and the entire church is waiting on one guy or one gal to fix a problem. This isn't really the biblical approach to these issues. It shouldn't look like that. That's not what the, the immediate, or that's not what the original goal was for this, right? This is why you have elders and deacons. They can kind of take some of this administrative weight and load and navigate some of that so the pastor can focus on training, equipping, counseling in some aspects and growing the church and evangelizing. Okay, verse 19. Listen now to my voice, Jethro says, and I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. That part isn't bad necessarily, but 20, verse 20, and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, verse 21, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties. And what's the last one? Rulers of tens, one of the ideal numbers for small groups, by the way. Verse 22, and let them judge the people at all times, and then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge, so it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. So what we've largely been doing, and it, wasn't, it didn't start this way, we just kind of molded into it, especially as North Americans, uh, I mean, this, it's a very pastor-heavy culture, right? You go to a Baptist church, especially like a lot of congregationalist churches that you have in North America, where like the tithe goes directly to this small local congregation, and everybody just has the pastor fixing and doing everything. Yeah, but that's not really the missional biblical model. The missional biblical model is that the pastor oversees the elders and so forth to equip them and to deal with bigger issues, but he's off doing bigger picture stuff, and the elders are actually the ones largely running the local congregation. This is also why our tithe model is quite different, right? Everything goes up the chain to support global mission, not just focusing on a local, you know, scenario, right? All the pastors are paid in the same range, and then all this gets dispersed other ways, okay? So this is a much better model to use. Verse 23, and if you do this thing and God so commands you, he says, then you will be able to endure and all this people will also go to their place in peace. The overall atmosphere is going to be better for everybody. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Okay, 
So the summary here is that you've got manageable numbers ensuring that the group can be fruitful and remove the crushing load off of the pastor by equipping lay people and church office holders to actively participate in growth and the instruction of the church. This is why this is so beneficial. You're spreading that load and you're empowering church members to fulfill their calling. Instead of all of them sitting and staring at this guy do all the work, you're actually being mobilized and equipped to do the work alongside him. His job actually gets easier, right? And you're less stressed out and waiting for him to answer your calls or follow up because he's dealing with everybody else's stuff. Does that make sense? So that's a big picture sense, but small groups, this is why there's the benefit. Here's the third one, Jesus' approach, and we actually addressed this this morning. You'll hear this quote a second time from David Platt in his book, Radical, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. Speaking of Jesus' approach with the 12 disciples, Jesus lived for them. During his earthly ministry, he spent more time with these 12 men than with everyone else in the world put together. This is astonishing when you really think about it. At the end of the Son of God's time on earth, he had staked everything on his relationship with 12 men. In the middle of his prayer in John 17, he even mentions that one of them, Judas, was lost. So now we're down to 11. These 11 guys were the small group, right, responsible for carrying on everything that Jesus had begun. One of his final moments with them is captured in Matthew chapter 28. The 11 gathered together and Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. After intentionally spending his life on earth with these 11 men, Jesus told them, now you go out and do the same thing with others. So the mega strategy of Jesus was to make disciples, okay? So the summary for this approach here, this third bullet point, is that the level of investment you make in these people is what brings about its success. Lay down your life for them and labor for them as Christ labored for his disciples. So have it center around an activity that can teach them about heavenly principles, right? The second bullet point um, was to, oh man, I already blew past that. Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, manageable numbers, right? Break them down into manageable numbers. And then the third bullet point is to literally pour your lives into them. Let this be a place where genuine, caring investment is happening, not just an activity that we just do for the sake of doing it, but we're never really connecting deeply or investing in people and helping to elevate them in their station of life, right? Like we talked about with George Mueller this morning. Now, the example of the early church. Okay, in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, the church is in one accord. It preaches the sufferings of Christ with power, so the gospel was their main emphasis. Okay, number two, doctrine, fellowship, and prayer are a daily occurrence for the whole church. Right, they're meeting in homes, they're spending time studying the word together, praying together, and fellowshipping together. Number three, they're heavily involved in service and benevolence. This is another way that you can kind of focus your group, that for an hour you're just doing service projects in the community. Again, there's already existing ministries that are doing things, or you can start a ministry to fill an unmet need. The thing is, like, a lot of times we start ministries and do things that everybody else is already doing. If someone else is already doing it, then just partner with them. Why do you need to do another thing that everybody else is doing? Right? Because, well, we're going to do it the biblical way. Or Like, come on, guys. Like, just find ways to partner together. Ellen White actually makes this statement that to refuse to partner with other people because they don't see perfectly eye-to-eye with you is absolutely ridiculous. 
right? That's not, that's not how this is to, like, find ways to partner with and grow with and cross-pollinate with other people of similar mindsets and similar ideals, right? Instead of stovepiping, everybody's doing their own thing and not synergizing, find ways to either partner with people who are already doing what you're looking to do, or two, do something else. Come, find out what the needs are in the community and choose to address them, right? As a group. Uh, all right. So in Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, it says, Continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. How many people like that part? Going to somebody's house, having some homemade bread. Christy Delinsky made some delicious bread last night. It was amazing. Okay, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Right? But for many of us, what we call fellowship is dressing up, acting like somebody different than ourselves, just being super friendly, not going any deeper than happy Sabbath, nice to see you. How was your week? Fine. How was your week? Fine. See ya. That's not fellowship. That's putting on a mask and lying to each other for many of us. It was a terrible week, but I don't want to depress you. Whatever it may be, right? Genuine fellowship, a place where you can be vulnerable and open with one another, talking through, praying through your next week. What were some of your victories from this week? What are the things that concern you from this week? What are your hopes for next week? Hey, let's pray about those. And next week, let's talk about it. Are you understanding? A genuine form of fellowship. This is part of what was happening in the early church in the book of Acts. Acts 4.32, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and listen to this, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. Could we say that today? There were none among them who lacked. David Platt addresses some of this in his book. You may think it's radical, but it's called radical, so... Anyway, verse 34, now there, nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and they laid them at the apostles' feet, and then they distributed to each as anyone had need. Okay, so here's the last point. A sense of community is so crucial to the health and growth of all in the small group. Growing in fellowship and service can do more for the health and upbuilding of the church than nearly everything. You want to know one of the reasons why churches argue as much as they do? because they're not actually engaged in self-sacrificing service. When you're actually engaged in self-sacrificing service, you don't have time to argue over the cover of the color of the drapes or the carpet or other foolish, trivial things, right? The refrigerator's too big in the fellowship hall, whatever it may be. Like, guys, if we were actively engaged in laboring for and serving our community, we would find more unity in a local congregation. It's just true. And so this is another great thing. So this is what's so wonderful about this idea of small group evangelism, right? Because you have church members, first of all, who are engaged in this group, who are growing together, building deeper and more substantive fellowship, but they're also connecting with people who don't just think like them, right? The, the esoteric nature of you know, religious groups can really kind of force you. If you're only hanging out with people who eat like you, drink like you, dress like you, and talk like you, you really are not in touch with the world that's out there or what their needs are. And then we schedule these outreaches. Oh, here's what we need to do for the community. But you're not actually spending any time with community. 
So you're setting up an event for what you think they need. The problem is that isn't what they actually need, and you're not talking with them to find out what they actually need. Does that make sense? And then you don't understand why they don't come to your events. Well, they're just not converted. They're not interested in spiritual things. They just don't have spiritual interest. They may actually have spiritual interest. You just haven't asked the right questions. You haven't gotten to know them to know how to actually create outreaches that are tailored to their needs and desires. Does that make sense? And so when you invite people into these small groups who don't eat like you and drink like you and think like you, you become a better cultured person and a more winsome soul winner, right? Because you're learning how to not talk in Aventese, you know, religious language. You're learning how to actually talk with normal people who don't do what you do. It's really, really helpful, right? And so it's really easy, especially in places like this, right? Loma Linda and College Dale and so forth, to just get all caught up in Adventist bubbles and Adventismness that we forget that there's a world out there that could care less about Adventism and they have no idea what you believe. They couldn't find the book of Genesis for their life, right? To be able to interact with and interface with people like that is so helpful to keep you grounded and connected and more, more in touch with what's going on in the world around you, okay? So again, our summaries. The Eden School, an activity that teaches about the principles of heaven, is a great way to instruct and grow character in a small group setting. And when a small group is successful, this model and some of its members should be used to start another group. Moses and Israel, manageable numbers ensures that the group can be fruitful and removes that crushing load off of the pastor by equipping lay people to nurture and participate in growth and instruction in the church. Jesus' ministry model, right? The level of investment you make in these people is what will bring about its success. Lay down your life for them and labor for them as Christ labored for his disciples. And number four, the example of the early church, a sense of community is so crucial to the health and growth of all in the small group. Growing in fellowship and service can do more for the health and upbuilding of the church than most things, okay? So this is kind of the biblical foundation on why this matters. Has this made sense so far? right? We're just saying you can make a biblical case for this. It makes sense, and it can work. Now let's talk about how you can begin small groups, how to navigate it, and then we'll close with this powerful article written by Craig Dossman back in the 90s in Ministry Magazine. All right, so for one, pray and recruit leaders to begin in your groups, right? You're going to need strategic leaders to get involved in leading out in your group. Number two, start small and grow from there. Don't overwhelm yourselves with all these grandiose, superhuman plans. There's beauty in simplicity. We're going to meet in a home. A few of us will take turns at leading out. There's going to be food involved, and we're going to invite people that don't eat, drink, look, and dress, and talk like us. Start small and start simple. Yeah? Okay? And the thing is, you... Hopefully, you're interacting with people like this already, right? Hopefully, that is the case. If not, it's a good way to start. And when you interact with them and interface with them, right? One of my friends, uh, he's a pastor up in Bangor, Maine. It's a super secular area. And one of the things that they did is they were super intentional and hanging out at the same place with regularity. So he started a book club, the mayor of the city. The former mayor of the city is a good friend of his. And he's, he's very much engaged and active in his local community as a pastor, they know he's a pastor, but he's engaging with the community and community events. And so he would eat at the same restaurant every week, the same night of the week. 
and he got to know that there's a beautiful story. He got to meet one of the servers there, and the guy connected with him, started to get involved in coming to the church. He would open up the church service every week for people to share testimonies or stories about their lives, just to grow together and connect. Again, it's a very secular environment. His whole church service may make some of you want to flip tables because we all had to sit in pews and stare in the same direction, round tables, ah, circles, right? Like some of us, we just don't know how to navigate some of these things because we've been programmed to a non-biblical model. Yeah, I said it. Um, and we'll talk about that here in just a moment. And so anyway, this guy comes and connects with the church and has a beautiful experience with him because he spent years of regularity. When you go to the gym, when you go to a restaurant, just strategically place yourself in a place consistently and you'll see familiar faces. You can start making connections and build friendships and so forth. So start small. Those are the people that you would invite to your group eventually, right? People like that. You're not just going door to door necessarily for this. These are people that are already in your walk of life and are invested and connected to you. And because that trust is there, those are the people that you invite to the small group. Does that make sense? This is basically the premise. Plan on meeting once a week for two to three hours. Okay, have an activity, a meal, and some form of study or discussion. We'll talk more about what that part will look like here in just a moment. You can rotate houses and responsibilities from week to week. Some people are scared of this. Like, I don't want to have to clean my house every single week. It's super busy. It's hard. You can rotate duties. It'll be at your house one week. It'll be at your house the next week. And so it's just two weeks a month, right, that you're having to actually host or whatever. Okay? Uh, you can have all the groups study the same thing within the church, or you can have groups studying different things, kind of like what you guys do for Sabbath school. You got your quarterlies, you got Steps to Christ or whatever, an inverse and so forth. Um, so you can have studies, maybe one's doing prophecy, one's doing the life of Christ, one's doing a book of the Bible. Maybe you're doing addiction recovery or study guides or something else. I would encourage you to not start with doctrinal studies, right? Just start building community around basic Christian principles. Study the parables of Jesus or uh, just one book of the Bible or so forth, just to kind of grow and build community. We're just so impatient in our evangelistic efforts. We have to get them to believe what we believe in right now. Why? <laughs> yeah, it's just like, why, why are we so impatient, right? For many of us, if you came into the Adventist church, right, we were on a journey. And I'm not saying don't share our fundamental beliefs or be ashamed or afraid of them. I'm just saying learn to connect with them as people and build Christian fellowship around common bonds to start before you start getting into polarizing and testing truths right away. Build your community, build your support, and then after that, after your first series of small groups, if it's for, you know, two months or whatever, have your next phase and start going into more doctrinal studies and so forth. Just don't start with that right off the bat, right? Have it be a safe space for anybody to come into and grow and develop and learn, learning how to study the Bible and talk about it together, right? Then from there, you can go into more unique teachings, okay? So I'm not saying never do that, but you don't start with that, Okay. Groups can be comprised based upon geography, men, women, youth, or the activity itself, right? So maybe you have one in this side of town, the one in that side of town geographically, or maybe you have like a school of medicine one, and then a school of dentistry one, and then a whatever else you guys study here, the, you know, the thing with the stuff, and yeah, okay? One of those groups. Um, you can do it around gardening or running or a book club or something else, right? You can kind of have a theme for your group and have them be different. Okay, I, I think, uh, is Jackie here? Okay, so ja I think Jackie was talking about when they're doing like a women's book club or something, the praying godly woman or something like that. Um, something like that is also can be helpful where you just you know, do something along those lines. 
Consistency and commitment are the utmost importance, though, right? You're encouraging people to be regular and consistent in this group, right? They're kind of committing that each week they're going to plan on being there and coming. And the group should be a minimum of six people with a maximum of 15, but really 10 to 12 is kind of that sweet spot. You don't want to be any bigger than that. And there's reasons for this, even like sociological reasons, that once you get to a certain size, people feel like singled out. Um, if the group is too small, like, ah, just everyone's looking at me. But if you get too big, they feel like they don't have a voice. So kind of a nice sweet spot to run the 10 to 12 range. I think maybe 9 to 12 range, something like that. I forget what the studies say, but basically it's around that number, which is fascinating because how many disciples did Jesus choose again? Twelve, right? Just kind of this nice, smaller group of people. It's easy. Everyone can have some form of input, right? No one's really kind of dominating. Have them be semi-closed or open. I would strongly encourage you to have it be semi-closed. What does that mean? Basically, it's by invitation only, right? Because this is a place where you plan on being vulnerable and open together, talking about your needs and praying together. And if you just have strangers coming and going all the time, it's kind of hard to feel safe enough to open up. Does that make sense? So in a semi-closed group where you kind of start by invitation, you've got about, you know, seven, eight people. Hey, uh, I've got a guy at work that I just met with today. Are you guys okay with me bringing him to group next week? Right? Having this type of process so that people know that a visitor is coming, they can kind of prepare themselves, and they really are thinking about being a place where they can open up, right, and grow together and be vulnerable and so forth, where it's healthy and safe and they feel, you know, protected. A moderator is the leader's role. And this is super important. You should learn this about Sabbath school too. Anyway, so moderator is the leader's role. The people are not coming to hear a sermon, nor are they coming to give a sermon, right? Sermon. So somebody's monopolizing the time, cut that thing off. Hey, I appreciate that, but we want to give some other people an opportunity to share. And you need to lay down ground rules. Let people know this is a place that what we talk about in this group stays in this group. We're not going to talk about people's business to other folks, right? Sometimes we do this whole prayer request gossip chain, right? Oh, pray, you know, I'm not saying this is gossip. I just, I think we really should pray for them. No, you're saying it is gossip. You're calling to talk about praying for them because you're really just gossiping, right? In a lot of scenarios. There to be a place where you keep your business private and everybody else's business private just within the group. It's really important to protect that and lay down ground rules, Right? Please keep your comments kind of short and to the point and on topic so we don't kind of deviate. We have limited time together. We want to be respectful, not only people's time, but also to give other people a chance to have something to share. Because what happens is if somebody keeps dominating every week, no one else wants to talk anymore. So you've lost a chance for community input. And again, these are important rules for Sabbath school. If someone comes in with an agenda and is trying to monopolize, shut them down. Shut them down. Don't be a people pleaser. Right? It's hurting the rest of the group at large when someone just keeps dominating the conversation when this was meant to be facilitating a group discussion. So you, as a, as a small group leader, are not coming to preach a sermon, nor are people coming to preach a sermon either. Okay? Super, super important. Uh, so uh, group input and getting everyone to participate is the role of the moderator. David Ashrick, one of my teachers and uh, mentors, he makes a point that when he teaches in a class, he intentionally tries to give people wins in a group environment. So if he notices this person never talks, he's going to ask a really simple question and ask that specific individual to answer just to help them build social confidence and get them bought into the conversation at large. I love that advice. It's a really helpful thing. So if you can tell this person has no biblical understanding, ask really simple questions of them directly to help them learn to open up and verbalize and engage in communication without feeling totally like overpowered and scared about a topic that they don't know much about. 
Does that make sense? Really kind of trying to lure out of them the ability to have input and engagement. Again, confidentiality is super important. This needs to be a safe place to share our heart and our battles. Uh, This is not intended to be done instead of church. Did you hear me? Small groups are not intended to replace church. Don't do them on a Sabbath morning. Don't do it. Do them some other time, right? Set them up in a different time during the week. You're going to need to get consensus, right? Do a poll amongst the people who are going to be involved. What's the easiest day, right? Shalina, you were just doing this earlier this week for At The Door. Like, hey, what's the, uh, you know, like what day works for you guys? How can we make this work that's best for everyone involved? How about the people that you would invite? When can they come? Do that kind of poll and then even get feedback from the group. What are, the, what are things that they're interested in? Right? Because if you ask questions of people and ask for their feedback and for their interest, if you choose to do what they're interested in, you now have their buy-in. Right? So if I were to do this, would you come? What are you interested in? Oh, well, I think I'd like to talk about uh, the life of Jesus. Oh, great. Well, we're going to start a group on that, so are you going to come? You allow them to have buy-in, allow them to kind of you know, connect in that sense. Okay? So this is to grow and strengthen the church, not to replace church. And this may not be for everyone. This is the hard part, right? This may not be for everyone. Some people talk too much. Some people are too combative and opinionated. And others just don't like being in group settings. And that's okay, okay? The church should be doing them. That doesn't mean that everybody's involved. And so by laying down consistent and clear guidelines and rules for everyone else, now you have a leg to stand on when someone violates those group rules, So if someone is dominating the conversation every week, you can pull them aside and say, hey, we really are trying to have group feedback, and if this continues, this this isn't going to work. Maybe finding a different group would be best, okay? Uh, Same situation if someone's kind of being a bully or picking on people or kind of being argumentative towards somebody else. Oh, that's a terrible idea. That's dumb. The text doesn't say that for people who've never read the Bible. When people kind of start trampling on others in the group, your job as a leader is to protect those involved, to lay down those ground rules and to enforce them and to basically give somebody an invitation, right? Let them know, hey, I just, I don't think this is going to work. So yeah, we're, we're just... We don't think your involvement is, is going to be best in this group for right now. And that's hard, especially as a people pleaser, but you got to do it, okay? Spend a fair amount of time in prayer together at the close. This can be such a beautiful and powerful bond builder amongst your group. And the thing is, there's reasons for this, and I'll show you why. Firstly, it gives people a therapeutic opportunity to express their burdens. There's a safe space for me to just talk about what weighs on me and what's difficult. It's really, really helpful, okay? And again, even in your ground rules, like you don't want people to go into gory details um, and just kind of lay that down so people don't feel like, oh my goodness, like we all feel awful. Ellen White actually makes a comment on this regarding our prayer meetings that some people, the things that they bring up basically like turn the thermostat down to 30 degrees for the entire spiritual atmosphere of the meeting. She says a chill comes over the congregation that never leaves for the rest of the meeting. So we don't want to go into like graphic, super discouraging details, but to have a place where you can kind of talk about the fact that there's stuff going on in my life. I'm concerned about my marriage. I'm concerned about my children or my job or whatever. It's really therapeutic to have that. Second of all, it models a life of dependence upon God for our needs, right? So yes, you're opening up to the group, but we as a group are carrying your burdens to the feet of Jesus and teaching you depend upon him to be the solution, not us right? Because as you're doing ministry, the worst thing you can do is lead people to be dependent upon you instead of Jesus, right? You don't want to do that. So you want to be the conduit that points them to Jesus, okay? And many people and newcomers are entirely ignorant that they can bring their problems to God and expect answers. 
And in a small group setting, you can take requests and share praises, right? You can have a prayer book. Uh, I think Jonathan stepped up. I think they had that in their group, didn't they? Where they had like a prayer book, and then when things go well, like they cross it off, like God answered this prayer. That's a beautiful idea. Someone can kind of trade uh, and hold the book for each you know, week and just pray over them over the request. It's a great way for people who aren't strong in a faith experience to realize like, man, God actually cares to hear about what's going on in my life and has answers and solutions, this will grow and and strengthen their faith by doing this, okay? This informs your prayers and it allows you to take the request to church prayer groups so they are well prayed for and likely to see a miracle firsthand. So this is potent faith building and training uh, to hear testimonies and even see miracles firsthand, okay? So these are some good principles on how you can kind of start this process of beginning small groups, some things you can kind of come up with on uh, kind of considering how to start your own, and some powerful lessons for us. This is from an article called Small Group Ministry by Craig Dossman. Um, I have no idea who this guy is. I don't even know if he's still alive. He could be in the room for all I know. Um, But he wrote an article for Ministry Magazine back in like 1992, I think. It'll be posted towards the end of this. But I want you to listen to what this guy says. This this article blew me away as I was doing some research. I, I came across it. Speaking of uh, the early church, he said the movement was both Christ-centered and people-centered, seeking to fulfill the potential of all members. The collective body of believers felt a sense of belonging to one another and to God. They found joy and strength in fellowship, and at the same time, they found true meaning in life by serving one another and the outcasts of society. One of the ministries that the early church had was that they would pay for people to actually have a proper burial who couldn't afford it. Finding those unmet needs within the community and supporting them and helping them, okay? He continues, In their worship, early Christians gathered under trees and along the seashore. Many met publicly in the open markets. Even in the midst of impromptu gatherings, the Spirit of God rested upon them. The preaching and praying of the early church became so effective that it became a threat to the Jewish religious establishment. Many Christians were banned from the temple and imprisoned because of the controversy that surrounded their presence. The church also became too much for the Roman government to handle. The emperor Nero banned all believers from meeting in public places. He declared Christianity illegal, and violators who were caught were punished. Rather than hindering the church, though, Nero's edict became the catalyst for greater growth. Since believers could no longer proclaim their messages in the streets, where do they take it? To people's homes. And what happened? The church grew as never before. Persecution became the torch that carried the message from house to house. While Nero was busy burning Christians in public, the Christians were even busier in private proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Nero didn't under, didn't know that the benefit this is amazing. Nero didn't know that the benefits of Christian faith were far greater than the suffering he inflicted upon believers. He didn't understand that the love and care they received from one another far surpassed the power of his death threats. And in the context of home fellowship, the Christian church was fortified and established. The body of Christ offered a refuge for those ostracized from their own families. Whatever a member might need materially was satisfied by the fellowship's mutual assistance charity. The small group structure was conducive to solving problems, mending broken hearts, singing songs to encourage one another, offering prayer, proclaiming truth to visitors, and leading sinners to Christ. Isn't that powerful? This is the example of the early church. There were no sleeping pew members with this type of ministry. After Constantine's conversion, the church was taken over. 
The church moved from homes into brick buildings that looked more like mausoleums than places of fellowship. Constantine built elaborate buildings. Churches once intimate became institutionalized. Policy took precedence over people, and meetings became more important than ministry. Instead of church being a place where loneliness ended, it became the place where loneliness began. And in the home church environment, people were expected to participate. But in the large congregational atmosphere, the flock scattered. I can't really participate and be involved because I'm not the one preaching, yelling, and, and talking to everybody else. Okay? In small group structures, people could speak and share the word with boldness, but this became impossible in large gatherings. The whole church became swallowed up with the arrival of bricks and mortar, and so began the slow death of the vibrant church. And it didn't take long before all preaching or public speaking was centered in the pulpit. Choirs took over the simple singing of the fellowship, while members learned the great Christian art of spectatorship. Before long, they also learned how to be bumps on the church log. When the church switched from living rooms to a building and a professional staff, it lost momentum. The Christian army became little more than a sophisticated cheering section for the newly established clergy. The clergy took the scriptures from the people, not allowing them to read the word for themselves. All eyes became directed to the pulpit, and all instruction came from the lone ranger of the gospel. Such a worship environment caused spiritual crib death for new babies joining the church. No structure existed to nurture their growth or nourish their growth. Local congregations became weak and cold, and the church plunged into the dark ages. Mercy. Non-preachers were considered laymen, a concept found nowhere in the Bible. While the scriptures, with the scriptures out of the hands of common people, preachers exerted theological authority unchallenged by members. Without the word of God to spur them along, members assumed a passive role in ministry. Whereas the church in earlier times had enjoyed skyrocketing, skyrocketing growth, she now became entrenched in a hole that she dug herself. Whoa. So he's literally making the connection that with the dissolving and getting rid of the small group model, this is part of what plunged us into the dark ages. The amazing thing is he picks up later in this, it's actually from Ministry Magazine, July 1993. It's called Small Group Ministry by Craig Dossman. You can Google it and find it, I'm sure. So he goes on to show how the Reformation was launched, by the way, small groups, people meeting in homes. Isn't this fascinating? People, and it isn't that we need to get rid of church per se. We're not saying that. The point is that by removing this opportunity for fellowship and growth together in a smaller, more intimate gathering, it's become very institutionalized and very spectator sport-like, right? You guys all sit on this side of the velvet rope while the big boy comes and does all the work. And then you get out of your chair, you go home and continue to do nothing. That wasn't what the early church model was meant to be. Everybody got to have a role. So imagine, like, yeah, but I, you know, I, I don't think I'm really called to ministry because I can't preach. Who said ministry is only preaching? Ellen White actually goes so far as to say that there's good religion in a loaf of bread. Learning how to, knowing how to cook a, a delicious loaf of bread, there's good religion in that. So imagine, maybe you can't lead out in a Bible study right now. You could with training, but maybe so you can't right now, but you do love having people in your home. That's a ministry, guys. That's a ministry. I went to a small group at George's house some years ago. I remember that. Had some delicious watermelon, right? 
Like, this is one of those things that we can do, right? You can open your home to people. Someone else can facilitate for this week. Someone else can facilitate next week. You just open your home. You prepare a meal. You prepare some form of dish. There are things that every single one of you can do. Maybe some of you like organizing and calling people and doing communications and being the scribe for the meetings. Great, we need you. Use your skills in this ministry. Maybe some of you are more comfortable in teaching people and helping them to understand things. Hey, we need you for that too. Are you guys understanding? Being a nurturing and friendly and in supportive environment, everybody can be involved in that. This now means you can have the entire church involved in ministry, not just someone who has the gift of preaching. Does that make sense? We need every single one of you with the gifts and talents that God has given. You can bring those in. Maybe someone here is a carpenter. Someone here is a gardener. Someone here loves running and knows how to do that and how to teach others to do that. Start a group around that activity. Someone else can lead the Bible study, but you teach people how to make a, a, a bookshelf, right, for their home or how to, you know, improve their run times or just start it. Someone just told me this morning, uh... I don't remember, forget who it was, saying that they started a walking group. I don't remember who, was that? No, okay. Uh, the guy that was singing here last night, I forget who it was. Maybe who's saying, yes, it is you, right? Okay. He was kind of hesitant to say it. But yeah, starting a, like a walking group, that's a beautiful thing, right? It's one of the healthiest forms of exercise. Maybe you like weightlifting, you're a personal trainer. The, I, I just think it's helpful to realize you don't have these interests and these desires for like totally godless reasons. The fact that you're a physical therapist or an exercise physiologist or a personal trainer or a nutritionist, right, or someone who's good with finances, you can literally leverage these gifts and talents in ministry. You could start a small group just based upon biblical principles of money management. You could do that. Guys, the possibilities are endless. So whatever your burdens and passions are, you can now leverage this for the glory of God and for furthering in ministry. God needs you now more than ever. And the chances of somebody walking cold off the street into a local church congregation aren't going to be near as high as being invited to somebody's home to learn how to manage their finances, lower their blood pressure, right, or how to make, you know, uh, goods, you know, quality goods with their own bare hands. Does that make sense? You can literally do this for the gospel one day a week. Take something that you love to do. I would love to start a small group around, start a small group around golf. I actually used to play golf with the people I'd study with. Like, you can do whatever you want along these lines. Just finding some way to connect with people, right? Maybe you have a basketball outing one, one night a week, but you guys have a prayer time afterwards as a start, right? And then you kind of funnel some of these people into an actual study as interest in time grows. Basketball's harder because people just go so dang competitive and nearly violent at times. Uh, church league basketball was like the most violent form of basketball when I was growing up in school. So um, anyway, it is what it is. It could be said, by the way, that John and Charles Wesley are the fathers of small group ministry. They had their members meet weekly in their homes as groups to discuss the word and also to confess their sins to each other and give their support to help them overcome. Actually, pray together, support each other, and so forth. Dossman points this out in his article. So has this made sense today? Right, just a basic, practical way that you can, because some people think like, man, the only way I can do ministry is if like I individually go to someone's house and give them a Bible study and that scares the pants off of me or getting up and preaching to people, which scares the pants off of me, right? Well, there's other ways that you can engage in practical, helpful, God-honoring evangelistic ministry by incorporating this life group, small group model with the gifts and talents and interests that you already have. 
There are literal gifts and talents that you have right now that could be used for the glory of God. And maybe no one's told you that before today. We need you. This movement needs you now more than ever. And start small. See what you can do to leverage these gifts for the glory of God. I want to open up for questions, because sometimes this is something kind of piques interest, but we don't quite know what to do. And uh, I have exactly negative uh, 60 seconds to take questions, because I'm technically my time's over. But let's just try to make it quick. Are there any questions that you guys have uh, regarding this topic? You say it makes sense. Anything I can kind of help to answer, kind of give you some general direction? Maybe it was super clear and you have need of no questions, but I figured at least open up if you did have them. Anybody have questions? Y'all got to figure it out. How about any brief testimonials about what doing this model has done for you and the impact that you've seen it make? Just if anybody wants to kind of validate that. Anybody have any testimonies you'd like to share of how small groups have made a difference or what difference you've seen it make for you putting yourself out there in ministry or seeing other people be reached? Yeah, COVID was a big time for people to do this, kind of just find some way to have fellowship. How many people really, really missed having fellowship during that quarantine time? It It was really hard, wasn't it? Right, to be able to tap into that is super, super important. Anybody else? Any testimonies or any questions you have based upon what we talked about this afternoon? Um, can you, everyone can hear me okay, cool. So I can see why, I guess, for the model, you're saying maybe no more than 15 because this is kind of intimidating. Um, <laughs> it's true, that's why. But uh, we did small groups. I, I guess COVID kind of shut them down. But um, when it was going on, actually, um, especially here in Loma Linda, because everyone talks about like, oh, everyone's healthcare professionals and blah, blah, but it's not always true. And there's a lot of students also from overseas. So um, they don't exactly have, you know, a home. It's a totally new place, new country. And um, we were able to, one of the people who came to our small group um, was from Spain. Mm-hmm. And so we got to know her pretty well. And I guess, I guess she, I think her ba- background was Catholic, but I'm not sure how much practicing she was and everything. And she's very curious about Adventists and what was going on. And um, you could just tell that every week she was learning a lot. She's very curious about the Bible and it was a safe place for her to ask questions. And so that's somebody who I just couldn't imagine being able to reach them another way, you know, but because of that, you know, wanting to have friendships and to connect, it was a really good way to do that. And so that's kind of a testimony yeah. More than I have from that. So. No, amen. Yeah, it's, just, it's so much easier to invite someone to a home at first, right? We're kind of scared. This is the other benefit to doing small groups, that when you do eventually bring them to church, you can be with them and your group can be with them, right? In case there's that one crusty elder that's always too critical of people or says things they shouldn't say in Sabbath school. This is why we should have new believer Sabbath schools at every church in North America, by the way. But um, regardless, it's just kind of a nice thing to be able to have a place where you can kind of look out for them. If something happens that kind of like rubs them the wrong way, you know them and can talk through it together, right? They, they don't just leave and never come back. You can talk through what happened. Like, hey, that probably could have been said a little bit better. You're not bagging on the person that said it either. You're not trying to be critical of them. With their, you know what I mean? You need to be tactful, but you can just help them process, right? When they start hearing testing truths and they don't know what to do about that, like you can actually talk through it together. Like, hey, what'd you think about tonight's message? Like, ah, I just don't, I mean, like the Sabbath, like really? Like that's, it's that big a deal? Like, I just don't know about this. I don't see that in the Bible. You can actually help them process what they're learning through the relationship that you have with them, right? Which is super important. I, I did not become an Adventist for quite a few years because I had questions. I feel like what you're saying is true to some degree, but there's questions I just don't know about this Ellen White lady. I had other questions, and no one took time to answer them. So I didn't join the church for years 
because I still had these questions. It was once I went to Arise, if those got answered, someone took the time to help me process it. Others could have that same journey, right? So to be able to be that place where they can process and bounce ideas off of and have someone support them and the sacrifices they're going to have to make in joining this, right? We, we gave up a lot as a family. My dad and I did. It was quite difficult to accept this message, homelessness and everything else. It's not going to be that way for most people. But when that happens, to have a place to talk through that is super important as well. So it's safe to bring a visitor, but it's also a place to talk through the objections and questions and concerns that they have from new things that they're learning, right? Really, really helpful for that. Anybody else? Questions or testimonies? Yeah. Just from the, the testimony side, talking about how much easier it is to connect and to want to be part of a small group. I mean, I grew up as an Adventist, and church is, is comfortable to me, but there's, you know, after I've been out of town for a lot the last few months, and sometimes Sabbath morning, it's like, I'm not sure I want to go to church, and I don't know who I'm going to be sit with and whatever, but I've been part of a small group, and that never happens there. Like, mm -hmm. I don't want to miss it. it. I may be busy, but I don't want to skip there. So I can, I can personally relate to that, even being comfortable in church, right. that a small group can have even deeper connections. Yeah, and this is why it's so important to structure in a way that people would feel that way, right? It's inviting, it's safe, it's exciting, it's inspiring and edifying. You don't want to miss it. Right? You get in a workout class that you're just loving, you're seeing gains and so forth. That builds the intrinsic motivation to keep going. Imagine being a place like that community-wise, that people, that's, where they, that's like their favorite time of the week. Right? Their favorite time to just be heard and, and, and acknowledged and appreciated. Yeah. Was there one down here? Yeah. What led me to this church is through, oh, I just live close by, about okay. a quarter mile away. I attended once, and I... So the, there's a chub club. Yeah. I attended the next day. I saw, I met uh, uh, six people. And I love to walk. I've been hiking. I started walking here and I saw Hulda Crooks in the documentary and that mm. challenged me to, let me to hike and more and uh, climbing more mountains. So what led me to this church, it's through that small group the next day, mm. not the Saturday but that uh, Sunday, and, and I've been wanting to find a church that is a, a church-based walking club, and I've been promoting that to our Filipino churches here. And you guys have the, the only church that has that. Hmm. Uh, we need to support that, because I heard there's only, there are only 20 members, but walking is the best exercise. I'm a physical therapist. And Loma Linda is a blue zone. We need to, we need to put that light above the hill. Amen. It's like the song of the Adventists is, don't, uh, what is that song? Hide it under the bushel. Yes, I'm not going to let it shine. <laughs> <laughs> so let's not sing that song. So that's a good message. We need to support and, you know, it's a good, good exercise. Amen. Golf, golf, or whatever, whatever sports, but we can start with a small activity as walking. Yeah. So it's a great, great program. I hope uh, everyone should in, be engaged. Amen. Yeah, Chub Club is proven to be a blessing. That's great. Anybody else? Any brief testimonies or questions on how to start a small group? Or all right, that's fine. 
Thanks for coming, guys. Appreciate this. Hopefully this has kind of helped you. Again, I would encourage you to read that article. Just search Craig Dossman. Uh, you can see his name up here. It's called Small Group Ministry by Craig Dossman, and the article was Ministry Magazine, July 1993. Uh, you can find a, a digital version or a PDF version of that online. I was super blessed by it. There's another resource. Um, you can just Google small group, you know, like resources or small group principles. Um, that can kind of help. But this is, should be a way to kind of jumpstart it. There's other small groups already happening in this area, but I just think that you're, uh, yeah, it's just this like dynamite of potential for the Advent movement and evangelism that's largely untapped. So hopefully that will kind of awaken your passion and desire to take something and do, take this and do something with it. So let's pray. God, thank you uh, for your ways of doing really practical ministry. Some of us, we have glorified preaching We've glorified someone giving a personal Bible study, and those are beautiful, powerful things. Uh, They're biblical, but there are also other ways in which we can use the gifts and talents you've given us for ministry, and hopefully today we've seen that and that we're inspired uh, to actually get on the front lines and do something for you with the gifts, talents, and passions that you've given us. Pray that you'd bless this group here, that you'd give them wisdom and discernment on how to best implement it in their own personal, individual contexts. And I pray that the kingdom of heaven would be expanded because of the work that's done by these faithful in this room. We pray that you would cover our sins with the blood of Jesus, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that you would empower us to be your agents uh, who co-labor with the angels in the winning of souls for your kingdom. And we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.